anytime we open up a time of teaching, really want to invite you to commune with the Holy Spirit. God has a word for some of you today, all of you, actually. He has something he wants to speak to you, something he wants to correct, something he wants to comfort, maybe a point of conviction. Because each of us are called to manifest his kingdom in this world. And so there is a space and a place for you this morning, and your presence matters. Your presence matters to us. Your presence here matters to the king. He is smiling down on this community of children and excited about what he wants to do in you and through you and for you. Would you take a deep breath into your belly? All we're doing when we breathe is just becoming present to the present moment. You can notice all the thoughts in your mind, stuff you got to worry about tomorrow morning, stuff that's bugging you from last week. We've got 30 or 40 minutes here as a community of Jesus followers to listen to him intently. He intends to give us something to take into this week. Another deep breath, just calming the body and the mind. I would invite you to just open your heart and very gently with your breath say, Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. Collectively, we have been invited into this dance of the Trinity, each of us intertwined with one another and in God himself. Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. Let's just wait for just a moment on the Spirit. No need to rush. Meet us now, Father. Meet us, Jesus. Meet us, Spirit, in Jesus' name. For as long as I can remember, I have absolutely loved backpacking, and in particular, long-duration solo backpacking trips into the middle of nowhere. It started when I was a little kid. My dad would throw these secondhand army-issue army packs on our backs, which were the utmost of, un of discomfort, and we would pack up some sleeping bags and sardines and boxes of saltines and pick a ridge and dad would take us back in the middle of nowhere in the central mountains of Idaho. Upon reaching the lake though, wherever we were going to camp for the next few days, I had to always go further. Once camp was made, I would ditch dad, ditch my little brother Troy, and I had to go explore. I had to get further away, further into the wilderness. I loved to feel the quiet of high elevation mountains. And I just would sit atop these peaks and I would just watch the stillness over the valleys. And I, lit I literally loved it. And so to this day, decades later, I still find myself trying to get deeper and deeper into the backcountry. I, I actually got lost a couple years ago in the Sawtooth. So it was terrifying, but amazing. I loved being out there in the middle of nowhere lost. Now with every mile, as I you know, traverse back into these areas, my, my soul feels like it begins to expand into the solitude. And the silence sort of envelops me like a warm blanket. And so the peaks for me have become a place of real escape, a place of refuge, a place of release. Because my life, like most of yours in this room this morning, is often overcluttered, it's overscheduled, it's cramped, it's constant. Sometimes it feels literally suffocating. I have too many things that I want and too many things that I never wanted in the first place. <laughs> I have too many things I want to do, and I'm doing too many things that I never wanted to do in the first place. So 30 miles into the middle of nowhere, 12,000 feet above the hamster wheels of late Western modernity, I am reminded that so much of what I think I need and do, it actually means nothing in the big scope of things. 
And so with no internet, no calendar, no people to please or prove my worth to, and nothing but what I carried in on my back, simplicity returns my humanity. (laughs) Through this fall, Neighbors Church, our community, we are revisiting the values that guide us. And we are beginning this morning with our first value of simplicity. Now, leadership and shame guru Brene Brown, she writes, living into our values means that we do more than profess our values. We practice them. We walk our talk. We are clear about what we believe and hold important. And we take care that our intentions, words, thoughts, and behaviors align with those beliefs. Simplicity is a core value for each of us as individuals and as a community that we have to revisit and reestablish over and over and over. Why? Because modern life with its overabundance and never ceasing to-do lists is like the tides of the ocean. It's always moving us away from the shores of stability, sometimes slowly and perceptibly and sometimes violently. Simplicity and the value of simplicity helps us keep our bearings where we actually are in the world. And as Brown says, it's more than just talking about it. We have to assess, are we living by it? This is why we're revisiting our values through the fall, because I think in our community, we love to talk about simplicity and stillness, but most of us are not being simple, and most of us are not being still, including your fearless leader. (laughs) On simplicity, here's how our website reads, modern life is full of crammed calendars and clutter, keeping us distracted from what matters. Simplicity emphasizes contentment, letting the contours of the kingdom shape our life rhythms, allowing space for community and the presence of God. Now, the spiritual masters of antiquity throughout Christian history have generally defined the practice of simplicity as cultivating the art of letting go. Simplicity aims at loosening the inordinate attachment to owning and having and doing. The goal of simplicity is to uncomplicate and untangle and declutter our lives so that we can focus on what really matters. Simplicity returning us to a more true and full sense of humanity. Now, interestingly enough, this ancient spiritual practice that's been a part of the church for two millennia now, has actually been gaining some traction in some sectors of modern secular society. Minimalism, how many of you have heard of minimalism? Just by a show of hands, yeah, yeah. Minimalism has had a good long run on our Instagram feeds. You know, the pics of those sparsely populated bookshelves, there's like one book and half a plant on the other side. There's like this barren leather couch sitting next to this stark white wall. Thank you millennials for cold and uncomfortable living rooms. (laughs) Tiny homes, living off the grid, consuming less, buying less, reusing what has already been used. These have all been growing in greater and greater popularity amongst the younger generations. Gen Z not only considers thrifting as the eco and socially better choice, it's fashionably cool. I'm wearing a $10 pair of pants from a thrift store this morning, everybody. And could I just say to Gen Z, thank you for bringing back 90s baggy fashion. (laughs) Because those skinny pants, they are uncomfortable, man. (laughs) Ten years of painting those things on, and now I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So for us, for our community, the practice of simplicity, we see it as a liberator. 
it frees us. Simplicity will free us from these claustrophobic prisons of comparison and constant envy. Simplicity for us, it actually operates like a brake pedal on this runaway train of impossible deadlines and frenetic pacing and unnecessary meetings and constant exhaustion. Now, simplicity, it's not only about what we subtract from our lives, what we let go of. It's not only about doing less. Simplicity also enables us to say yes to things that we couldn't have because we have let go of those things that we should have. Did that make sense? With everything that we say no to, we are able to say yes with greater generosity towards God and towards others with our presence and with our time and with our money. And simplicity is not just about what we buy or what we own. Simplicity says, I'm going to assess my life patterns and I'm going to honor my human limitations. Simplicity reminds us that we cannot do everything and be everything to all people all the time. So where do we derive this value from? Like everything else at Neighbors Church, from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. As a community, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did, and Jesus lived a life of simplicity. Jesus was the king and the creator of all that exists, but he didn't come to live in an opulent palace. He actually had no home, and he lived on the patronage of some well-to-do women. Jesus did not try to keep up with the social elite. If anything, Jesus eschewed their practices and refused their definitions of value and worth. Jesus did not overschedule his calendar to keep everyone pleased. He was present to the people he was present to according to his human limitations, which meant that he was not present to all people all the time in every single way. And Jesus gave up everything to the point of giving up his literal physical life on the cross in our place. Now, as we look at the life of Jesus, does this mean that we should all sell our homes, get rid of our phones, overhaul our calendars, and never buy another article of fashionable clothing? Yes, absolutely. 100%. You guys know I'm all about starting a commune. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. When we look at the life of Jesus, of course we need to have homes. Of course we need to buy clothing. Of course we need to order our calendars. But the life and the teachings of Jesus in a room like this, a room full of, and you are, be assured, you are, in a room full of affluent Western Christians, communities like ours, when we look at the life of Jesus and we listen to his teachings, he forces us to ask some really raw and honest and difficult questions. This is some stats, embarrassing stats. The average credit card debt for a middle-class American today, $14,241. So what we've seen is that the rise of income and household net worth has not created contentment, oh, I have enough, but instead it's created greater overspending. The average American home has over 300,000 items in it. And the average size of that home has almost tripled over the last 50 years. You guys know the fastest real estate growing segment in the United States right now over the last 40 years is self-storage rentals. One in 10 Americans now have at least one self-storage rental, which means we are buying and renting real estate to store more stuff that we're never going to see or use. And we have to honestly ask ourselves when we read the Gospels, is this being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, if you're an apprentice, if you're a follower, if you're practicing his way. 
constant connection, you guys, and this information flow, it's exacerbating this within the church, this overbuying and this overbusy lifestyle. So marketing ploys and carefully curated influencers' Instagram lives are constantly telling us, we swim in an aquarium of people telling us who to be, what to have, who's better, and what's next. On average, we will pick up our phones 58 times a day. This is as adults. This isn't even talking about Gen Z, which is astronomically more. Averaging in upwards of four and a half hours today on our phones. That means that this year, as we approach 2023, we will spend 68 full 24-hour days on our phones. That is complicated. That is not a simple way to live. And so what I'm discerning in my own life is this. At the root of overspending and discontent and comparison and materialism, especially within Jesus's communities, is actually an identity crisis. We're all experiencing an identity crisis. Rather than our identities being built on deep meditation in the scriptures and the story of God and the overarch from Genesis to Revelation, our identities are built by what we see as we scroll. Our sense of value is not being experienced in God's presence or in community with each other, but by what they, whoever, whoever they are, whatever they say we should be and however they say we should be and whatever they say our value is, this is where we are rooting our value. And so simplicity emphasizes the practice of contentment, and it's hard work, as we'll talk about, according to the contours of God's kingdom, not of the world. We are not of this world. When we do not believe, and when we are not content simply being loved children of God, we will by default attach our souls to material goods. We will by default attach our sense of value to the opinions of humans, and this is all in a deceived attempt to feel valuable, to experience ourselves as loved. And underneath, understand this, and we'll talk much more about this through the fall when we get to our value of the Holy Spirit, underneath these false identity formations are the wounds of sin, the malady of sin, as Augustine would call it, and the lies of Satan, a malevolent personal creature with teams of demons laboring to deceive us and root us in this identity crisis. Psychologist and spiritual director David Benner writes this, the life of a false self is a life of excessive attachments. The false self grasps for anything that appears to have substance and then clings to these things with the tenacity of a drowning man clutching a life ring. One person might cling to his possessions, accomplishments, or space. Another may cling to her dreams, memories, or friendships. Any of these things can be a blessing or a curse. They are a blessing when they are held in open hands of gratitude. They become a curse when they are grasped in clenched fist of entitlement and viewed as, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is mine. So for the souls in this room laboring to practice the way of Jesus, modeling our lives after his life, following his teachings, in simplicity, we are learning to literally die to self, particularly dying to the false self that is attached to things and attached to human opinion. We Christians, we are laboring to attach our souls to the kingdom of God, to riches that will never rust nor be moth-eaten. So simplicity counterforms our worth and value, not by how we look or dress or what we drive or where we live, but by Jesus's blood spilled on the cross and our adoption as his children. This is the foundation of our identity. Now, as with everything in this community, we want to really try not to overpromise and underdeliver. And here's what I mean. Oftentimes when folks are introduced to the practice of simplicity, and when we get to stillness, it's the exact same thing. 
initially everybody's like, oh man, that sounds so good. The practice of simplicity, wow. Less stuff, less clutter, less busyness on the calendar. This is gonna be so nice. Oh, contentment as a loved child of God in the kingdom. Yes, I'm in. (laughs) And often the initial choices based on simplicity and this practice, they are initially exhilarating and freeing and liberating and peace-giving. But practicing the way of Jesus in this life is a Long game endeavor. And the honeymoon of the practice of simplicity wears off pretty quickly. Why? Because simplicity is not the absence of complexity. It is not. Simplicity and serving the kingdom of God is actually full of continually complex problems. And simplicity is not the absence of terrible difficulty. Just getting rid of stuff and just removing a few meetings from the calendar will never rid us from the wounds, the malady, or the sickness of sin and this broken world. And maybe most importantly, and this is what we all need to hear as we endeavor to do this together as a family, simplicity does not lead to self-fulfillment, at least in the way that the world and our flesh defines and desires self-fulfillment. Simplicity in every way is a denial of the false self, Simplicity is a crucifixion of sorts, decision by decision, over and over and over. And crucifixion is much more than just a gold cross hanging about our necks. It's uncomfortable. It's humiliating. It's hard. It hurts. It strips us bare. It leaves us longing and aching and wanting. This is the deep roots of the practice of simplicity based on the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, key in on this. And I am, I am part of this culture as much as anybody else. In our self-care-obsessed culture, practicing simplicity within the church can subtly devolve into a way of saying no to things that we actually should be saying yes to and saying yes to things that we shouldn't be doing all in the name of self-care. Let me give you a few examples. You know, I think I need to avoid that friend. That friend right now is really hurting, and they're going to talk my ear off with all their emotional problems and the issues. I think in the name of self-care, simplicity, Dan was talking about simplicity. It feels more simple to me to just binge some Netflix because I can't handle their emotional state right now. It's not good for my mental health. That's not simplicity. That's not simplicity in the name of serving the other. You see, our radical individualism, it will try to twist simplicity into a Christian version of secular self-care. When in fact, simplicity says the remedy to our needs are to be with and to serve the other. Simplicity will always, when you guys begin to practice this and be intentional about it, it will always ask the most annoying questions at the most annoying times. There you are at Target, you're at Target, and there's that beautiful pair of jeans, and you just see those shoes and that thing, and simplicity's right there under the operating system, always asking, do I really need those new jeans right now? Do I really need that pair of shoes? It's so annoying when you begin to practice this. You find yourself continually asking, man, there's so much that I'm just certain I need, but I really don't. Simplicity then instead says, you know what? I'm going to look at those jeans. I'm going to see if I can find a a single mom that's really hurting this morning, and I'm going to buy her this pair of jeans. That's what simplicity does. Super annoying. Super hard. (laughs) Simplicity also, it seeks to detach from the distraction of the modern moment. 
And so in the modern moment where we find ourselves sitting collectively in a space together where we should be present to each other, loving one another, oftentimes, and I love just going to dinners and restaurants, I actually, it just breaks my heart. And you just watch people just scrolling through their phones as they're at dinner with each other. Simplicity says, I'm going to die to my need and my addiction to these algorithms, and I'm going to focus on the person in front of me, looking in their eyes, listening to their words, hearing their speech, and I'm going to speak to them. Simplicity returns us to our humanity. And when it comes to community in the modern West, when it comes to the practice of being with one another through the practice of simplicity, the modern West's statistics are abysmal. We are a very unhealthy church in the modern West. So goes the saying. Pastor Dan was talking about simplicity this last Sunday. It's Sunday morning. You know what sounds more simple to me than going to the gathering and having to put a smile on my face and talking to people and doing that weird benediction thing that we do at the end? And You know what sounds more simple? a latte and brunch. (laughs) On some Sunday mornings, absolutely, but I would say theologically and biblically, rarely. Rarely. Rarely does the secular way of self-care actually help form your soul against the wiles that it is fighting with. Wednesday night rolls around. This happens to me every Tuesday night. My community knows this. I tell them every Tuesday night, I didn't want any of you to come over tonight. (laughs) But I did. I'm exhausted. It's Tuesday. My overcluttered, cramped calendar is just upsetting me. This would be an easy one to get rid of, but I know in the practice of simplicity, there is a need to simply be with God's people and listen to them talk and eat some food and pray for one another. And so when you and I truly begin to follow Jesus in the practice of simplicity and as a community, what we see is that Jesus developed a life of simplicity through practicing what my wife and I, my wife and I call sacred yeses and sacred noes. Sacred yes and sacred no. This is the first step towards actually producing a life of simplicity that honors God and honors the community. What we see Jesus doing in the Gospels as you read the Gospels is you see him saying yes to certain things and you see him saying no to others in light of his Father's will for him in the world. Let me say that again. Jesus said yes to certain things and no to other things in accordance with the will of his Father. So Jesus, when he said yes and when he said no, they were sacred. Those yeses and those noes were sacred in the sense that they were devoted to God. He said yes in devotion to God. He said no in obedience to God's will for others through him and nothing else. This is what Jesus said about his life. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. That's pretty simple. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. This is the rally cry for the missional, simple life of the Christian, you and I, the hands and feet of Jesus. We are called to no less. We are to do what we see the Father doing and not do what we don't see the Father doing. A simple life lives to do only the will of God. Jesus, as we watch his life, he did not clamor after possessions. In fact, he told rich people to sell all their possessions and give to the poor. What Jesus did is he daily, in a simple way, trusted in the provision of his Father. And he taught us to ask for nothing more than our daily bread. Ludicrous, as we're setting up our 401ks and establishing our safeguards. Nothing wrong with that. But for Jesus, he would say, are you really just trusting for your daily bread? When worried, 
Jesus would encourage us to see the sparrows who were well-fed that morning and to look at the flowers that were beautifully clothed, all as a means of mitigating our anxiety about future necessities. Jesus, does everybody realize that Jesus did not heal every single person on earth while he was here? Do we realize how many people Jesus said no to? Regardless of how many people were healed in the Middle East during his actual three-year tenure on earth, those he said yes to, he saw the Father working there, sensitive to the work of the Spirit. When we get to stillness, we'll talk about how that all comes about through the Scriptures. Sensitive and seeing what the Spirit was doing, and he healed them. And those that he said no to, which I would imagine would have been hundreds, maybe thousands in his lifetime, he didn't heal. He entrusted them to the goodness of God and the life to come. Jesus had to have said no to multiple invitations and events. I take refuge in this as a pastor, honestly, of a small church where we're just big enough where I want to get to know every single one of you, but just big enough where that's absolutely impossible. And so there has to be a level of being able to say, with respect and love, I just can't. Our calendar is so crammed this week. Jesus had to have been able to say no to multiple invitations, things that would have been good things, but they weren't in line with the will of his Father for whatever reason. And everybody needs to hear this clearly. Jesus said no to some relationships and yes to others. And not just no to the toxic, annoying relationships. Can anybody say Judas? That's a pretty annoying relationship. <laughs> Can anybody say Peter? Jesus didn't say no to relationships based on his affinity or his like or dislike of another human. He said no and yes to relationships based on prayerful obedience to the will of his Father. There were the crowds upon whom he always had compassion, then there were only the 72 that he sent out on mission. There were only the 12 after an entire night of prayer that he chose as his inner circle of disciples. And of those 12, there were only three that he personally involved in his most transcendent moments. It was only Peter, James, and John who got to go into the inner room where he raised that little girl, Talitha Kumai, rise up. And only those three were invited up onto the mountain to see him in his transfigured glory. If I'm Andrew, I would have been sitting around like, hey, 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 what about me? You have to trust. You have to trust that these yeses and nos are sacred, devoted to God. And so like Jesus, we develop a grid of sacred yes to this and sacred no to that, remembering that oftentimes our yeses are not going to produce less complexity and less difficulty. That's not the, that's not the end goal. Our purchases, they should be prayed through and devoted to God's will, all purchases. Our events and our calendars, we should sit down with our calendars and we should go through them with this grid, asking, is this what God is doing or do I just feel pressure to please people? Is what I'm prioritizing, is what I'm prioritizing this week through simplicity, does it lead to more intimacy with God and intimacy with God's people and intimacy with God's will in this world? And often, friends, when we begin to devote our, de our decisions to God, here's what rises to the surface. Our truest priorities become just glaringly clear. This quote has been sticking with me for some time now. Debbie Millman, she's a secular designer. She's probably, she's considered one of the most creative and influential designers in the modern business landscape. She was being interviewed by Tim Ferriss, and she was talking about how many people she meets that they talk to her about wanting to commit to doing something truly noble, truly creative. They want to do great things in the world, but when it comes down to it, they actually fail from her perspective, and they come up with excuses like, I'm not smart enough, or more often than not, they'll say things like, I don't have time to focus on this. I'm just too busy. Millman said, busy is a decision. I am too busy is not only inauthentic, it's also lazy. I don't believe in too busy. Like I said, busy is a decision. We do the things we want to do, period. Oh, 
not super pastoral, but pretty true. If we say we are too busy, it's shorthand for not important enough. It means we'd rather be doing something else that we consider more important. If we use busy as an excuse for not doing something, what we are really saying is that it is not a priority. So we do the things that we want to do, period. That's what we do as humans. And the practice of simplicity and a grid of sacred yes and sacred no on what we buy and where we go and who we give our time to, it quickly shows the disordering of our actual loves. It shows how distracted and disordered our priorities are. And that's a good and a holy and a helpful and a healthy thing for our souls so that we might return to and walk in with great effort and great prayer and great earnestness and great commitment. All these things that our generation kind of breaks out in hives when I use all of those words. The way of love and generosity and service. This is the great trick of Christianity. God calls us to resist those surfacy, disordered desires so that as children we can experience the fulfillment of our deepest desires. Those things that we say we want, here's the pathway. Here's the process. So I just want to close this morning with some helpful points. Let's get super practical before we come to a time of prayer. Super practical, helpful points on creating a sacred yes and a sacred no grid by which we might practice this together as a community. Number one, Start small and remove things incrementally. Don't sit down with all of your closet and all of your house and decide you're going to sell everything and get rid of all your clothes and live in a monk's habit for the rest of your life. You will be absolutely miserable. You need to think of the process of practicing simplicity as like a heroin addict getting on methadone and slowly weaning off so that you don't die from withdrawals. (laughs) Start small. Now, if you're wired like me, the first time I was ever introduced to simplicity, I was introduced to, a, to a, by a guy. He's a dear friend of mine. I think he's crazy, but he's a dear friend of mine. He only has two pairs of pants and three pairs of shirts and one pair of boots that he thrifts about once every three years. And that's all he wears. And I was like, yes, Josh, I'm going to follow your lead. I'm getting rid of everything. And I walked to the closet. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. This is crazy. I'm not doing this. Then you'll discover all the excuses that you make up as to why you need what you think you need. And we are brilliant justifiers of stuff, just stuff. So start small. Maybe this week it's one less coffee than last week. I know I'm seeing eyes twitch in the room right now. I know I'm hitting some soft spots here. Maybe it's one less article of clothing Maybe it's looking at your calendar and saying, okay, the calendar this week, it looks like this is a superfluous situation that we've gotten ourselves into, either by pressure of people or by our own fear of man or by our own thinking this is an absolutely necessary event, be that especially for you young families with kids, it just just keeps ramping up and getting more and more chaotic and crazy. So try to remove one half of an event and then stay consistent with it for a month. The idea here is to start slow and remove things incrementally. And I would say that each of us must walk by the conviction of the Spirit. My friend Josh, I deeply respect him, more than many Christians in the West. He lives by his convictions. He lives them thoroughly, and it has influenced me. God, the Holy Spirit, will bring about a level of conviction of that which you should own and shouldn't own, that which you should buy and shouldn't buy, that which you should do and shouldn't do, those whom you should be with and not be with. Make sense? Start small. Start this week in your community groups. Figure out one thing that you're going to get rid of, one thing that you're not going to do, one person that you're going to engage with. 
with the practice of simplicity. Number two, I'm just calling this notice points of resonance. Where did our slides go? Noticing points of resonance or resistance. There we go. You can just leave them up, babe. Oh, Nyla's my daughter. That wasn't a weird thing where I just called her babe. <laughs> That's creepy as all get out. <laughs> notice, notice resonance and resistance. Resonance and resistance, babes. Resonance and resistance. <laughs> what does that mean? It's this point of conviction around the Holy Spirit. And so what we want to do is explore why when we're sitting in the mall and we see that pair of shoes, we think it's going to alter the universe if we have them. That resonance that we have with those shoes, and then why do we so resist the idea of not having those shoes? Or resonance and resistance. When you get around a certain community of people, you're like, yeah, resonance. We're all the same. We listen to the same music, same politics, same vibes. This is so good. This is simplicity. No, it's not. Notice where you're resisting. This community of people, this person, this political persuasion, this conversation, this moment. No, God, please. That's simplicity. Step into that with love. I like to ask the five why questions. Just ask why at least five times about something. It'll take you down through the layers. Why? 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 Why is such an explanatory question for us. Number three, ask this question about your purchases, about the people you hang out with, about the things you do. Do I legitimately see my father doing this? Do I really see my father doing this? Now, we have clear commands in scriptures to not forsake the assembling together of the saints. We have clear commands in scriptures to pray, to be evangelistic. We have all of those. It's very clear. None of us need to pray about being at church and evangelizing and sharing the gospel. There, that, there's no way that we need to pray about that. That's very clear. But there are other things that are much more ambiguous, and they require prudence and wisdom. And so we can ask ourselves, do I see my father doing this through me in this moment, with this event, with this person, with this purchase, or without this purchase, without this event, without this relationship? It's always framing our lives as Jesus framed his life. What we see our father doing, that's what we do. And then number four, and this is, this is a bit macabre, a bit dark for a Sunday morning, but it's very, very helpful. Make your decisions with your death in mind. Make your decisions with your death in mind. There is something about considering the end of our lives that help us reduce the clutter of all the non-necessities of this life. You know, the monks of Mount Athos, the Eastern Orthodox monks in Greece, they literally will sit and do their studies with a literal skull of one of their brothers on their table in front of them. You know, I've got this kind of dark skull tattoo that I keep right next to my heart, and a lot of it is to remind myself that death is dead, but I also, every once in a while, look down and I'm like, you know what? It's coming. Is this purchase, when I make this purchase, is it going to matter when this takes me over? When I'm nothing more than bones waiting for the resurrection of my physical reality? Will this decision, will this moment, will this choice, will this practice, will this relationship, will this event, what will it achieve and do in my soul for when I'm gone? What will it achieve this morning in pre-gathering prayer? There was language around our generational strategy that at Neighbors were working off of a, not a five-year plan, but a five-generation plan. What will this decision right now do for my great-grandkids? This works like a razor to just sort of slice away all the stuff. 
And it's appropriate that each of us do this at every stage of life. You kids are so, and I don't say kids patronizingly. I'm just, I'm 45, I'm getting old enough, I'm, I could be your dad. And the truth is you guys are so overwhelmed with school and classes and, and events and so many things. And you're young and you have the energy to do that. But I would encourage you, take on the practice now of learning to be still through simplicity that you might contribute a non-anxious presence. And as we age, we have to continually be going back to our calendars and back to our goods and back to our materialism and saying, is simplicity, is the way of Jesus a value that I'm actually living by? Here's what we're going to do now as we wrap up. Uh, this morning, you should have received communion. If you don't have communion this morning, I believe there is more communion available to you that my wife will get. Does everybody have the communion cups this morning? Julius, yeah, come on back up. So at Neighbors, through the fall, one of the things as we approach our teachings on the Holy Spirit, which we're going to do a full 100,000-foot theology of the Holy Spirit overview. But I think one of the things that um, for some of us has been lost on the church, both out of fear and anxiety and a need to control, is, is the fact that God is present to us by the Holy Spirit. And we really want our Sunday mornings to become a space and a place where you, because your presence matters, are prayed for and can pray for others. And so we're going to take communion, and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer time, and we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. We're just going to ask him to fill us. If you would, would you close your eyes? and Let me guide us in a brief meditation here before we partake of the communion elements. Right now, take your week, your possessions, the things that you think you need, the things that you're just desperate to have. Think about the relationships that you want out of and the relationships that you want in. Think about the events that are coming up this week. And I'd like you to, if you can, take that sense of doing and being and having and just place yourself in front of the cross of Jesus. In your mind's eye, God gave us the ability to imagine these things. It's part and parcel of our humanity. In your mind's eye, imagine all of your week behind you and in front of you, all of your goods, all of your materialism, and just see Jesus on the cross now for you. You don't, know, you don't need to know what he looked like. Just spirit come. As we look at the cross our possessions pale in comparison to the goodness of our God. We see that he was willing to sacrifice himself. He was willing to simplify and, and come and live a life of really, truly, in our Western standards, complete poverty so that we could receive from him eternal riches and forgiveness and be brought into the Trinity and commune with one another. I want to invite you before we partake of communion, just there in your seat, begin to confess where your priorities have been. Allow the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind something that he wants you to just offer to him, to offer to God on the cross. Covetousness, comparison, envy, exhaustion, clutter. You can just begin to pray yourself there in your seat quietly but put names to these things if you can be specific 
example, Father, I don't even have Instagram, and yet I so long to be seen. Thank you that you see me from the cross. I build my identity on what people think about my appearance, the way I look, my body image, my clothing, even insecure about the tone of my voice. I confess that to you, Jesus. Thank you that you made me and you see me and you value me at the cross. Spirit, come. Just offer him this list. take and open the bread. And now just returning back to that imagery of sitting in front of the cross, it may be helpful for some of you to have like a, a chest or a like a like luggage in which you've got all of your material goods and all of your events and all of your relationships and you're opening up that chest, that luggage and you're just laying it out on the foot of the cross but lay it out and allow it to be absorbed into Jesus, whose body was broken and bruised. Our materialism and our greed and our comparison, it actually crucified him. It diminished our humanity and it killed him. It manifested hell in this world rather than the kingdom on earth. And so he came and he absorbed that into himself. He took into himself our world and its brokenness. Verbally thank him for absorbing into himself all that we are and all the false attachments that we have. Thank him that in his bruising and his beating, he took all the wounds that we incur, self-incurred and incurred against us by the world and by sin and by Satan. And let's eat together. Take the cup as well. And now imagine your chest or your uh, luggage full of materialism and full of events, full of goods, full of clothing and shoes and fashion and full of relationships some that are so blessed, some that are so annoying and difficult. And just imagine it and your body and your soul and your emotions being washed clean, like the clutter's just being taken out. It's just empty, and you're just an empty vessel now. Nothing to hold up before God but your own hands. No people to impress. No events to get to, just you and Jesus at the cross. And he just washes you. And he reminds you that he designed you. He designed you. 
He sees you. He sees your beauty. He sees your value. And he paid the cost to have you. If you would, just, just for a moment more in this meditation, we're so individualized. If you can, try to envision this church community, all of us now together sitting in front of the cross with all of our luggage and all of our chests open, all of our material goods poured out, all of our events and calendars and relationships just handed to Jesus and his blood over us together, a community of simplicity, a community making space for the contours of the kingdom to dwell in our midst together, his blood washing us together as a family, his blood welcoming stranger and enemy to become family. Lord, bless this righteous work in Jesus' name. Let's drink. Tom and Kim, would you guys mind being prayer people for folks today? Tom and Kim are just going to be here. On the, We'll go on the sides of the room. If each of you could take a side of the room. This morning... It's really important that, you know, you embody what God's doing in your spirit. Um, I think it's easy for us on Sundays to, to intellectually take a bunch of data into our heads, but there's something about embodying. And I want to invite you this morning, if, if you're wanting, like you feel stirred in your heart for deeper intimacy with Jesus, you can either go to my wife or Weston in the back, I just, you're in, you're on. <laughs> Tom, Kim, go and get some prayer. Make that bold act of risk where you actually stand up before the Lord and you say, I, I actually need to embody this. I need prayer. There will be others in here for prayer. We're just going to sing here. Julius is just going to lead us in worship for a bit. Be bold. If you'd all stand with me. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Some of us this morning, as we're praying and as we begin to sing, you may be given a word. You may notice somebody in this gathering. And I want you to be bold. I know this can feel uncomfortable, but this is the culture that we really want to cultivate here at Neighbors. You may look at somebody and be given a word for them or an image or even a Bible verse just out of nowhere. I would encourage you, go to them and share with them. The church being the church, meaning we're all serving one another together. Or you may see somebody and they're just, they're worshiping, but you have this distinct, just a sense like, I, I want to pray for that person. Just go and, and gently say, may I put my hand on your shoulder? And then just listen and pray and allow the Holy Spirit to pray through you. Your presence matters. And let's allow this Sunday morning to be more than just song and teaching. Let's, let's be the church together. If you need prayer, go to the sides. If you're feeling emboldened this morning, let's just give the Holy Spirit time to do his work. Holy Spirit, come. Father, come.